0: So when architects and engineers and builders go about designing and building, uh, whether it's a, a building structure or a bridge, they, they look to build something that will withstand uh, pressure of the loads put on it, um, that will withstand uh, the weather and the elements, and that'll it'll, it'll last, right? You don't want to build something and put all the work into it just to have it collapse or uh, fall within a year. Now, structural failure can be caused by a number of things. Some of those are poor design, um, lack of maintenance on the structure, outside elements of weather, and sometimes just the, the inevitable deterioration of a material over time. And when that happens, whenever uh, some, th- th- there's that structural failure, the pressure of the load on that, that, that's bearing down on it causes the supports to fail, the joints uh, break, and that building or that bridge collapses. Now, they know that this is a a reality, and so to to prevent this from happening, the, the architects and the engineers and the builders consider three things as they're building a structure that will last. They consider it more than that, but I've got time to tell you about three of them. They consider three things. They consider resistance, stability, and rigidity. Okay? Let me tell you what those are. Resistance is the capacity of a structure to bear the tension and the pressure of a load without breaking. So, this really looks at the, the materials themselves, right? You don't want to uh, build a wall with, with thin material. You want to build it with something that's strong. That's why a, a stud or a 2x4 is, is a strong piece of wood. You wouldn't want to make that with uh, like craft wood, right? All materials have a breaking point. So here we're looking at kind of the internal integrity of the materials used. That is resistance. Now, stability is the capacity of a structure to remain upright and not tip over as you put the pressure of a load on it, whether that's coming down or or from the side. You want things to remain stable. You want your your house or your apartment building not to topple over, right? That's stability. And so here, the, the design of the structure, the engineering of that structure play an important role to keep this thing upright. And finally, rigidity refers to the capacity of a structure to maintain its shape and not become uh, deformed so that the structure can perform what it was intended to do. So when you build your walls, you don't just build a square, right? There's those um, studs in between to keep that wall straight up and to keep it from going like this. So rigidity looks at the joints and the bonds and the extra braces that are added so that the sum total of that structure is strong. Now, when a structure has those three elements, resistance, stability, and rigidity, the structure is sound and it will endure pressure and time. In today's passage in the book of Proverbs, we're looking at how to build a life that's structurally sound. See, everybody wants a life that's resistant to the tensions that life brings. We want to withstand pressure of life without buckling or breaking. Everybody wants a life that's well-designed and engineered to remain upright and not topple over. You've never heard someone say, man, what I'd really like to do in life is stumble and fall over every obstacle. Everybody wants a life that's rigid, where there's strong bonds with, with other people so that the sum total of our community is better together than apart. In our passage today in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 13 to 35, Solomon gives us insight in how to build a life that is structurally sound. And so just like we looked at the, 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 the resistance of a material, we want to look inside. We want to look at the material, look at our hearts to see if we are internally sound. And in the same way stability causes you to look at the designer and the, the engineer and the plans, we're going to look upward at our designer to find where true stability comes from. And then finally, we're gonna look outward at the bonds that that are formed in community that make us stronger together than apart. So start looking with me at verses 13 and 35. As we look inward, we're gonna look upward, and then finally, we're gonna look outward. Verse 13, blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She's more precious than jewels, And nothing you desire can compare with her. Now remember, we've been walking through the book of Proverbs, which is uh, uh, wisdom from God given to us so that we can uh, build a life that is uh, reflective of his wisdom. And we kind of defined wisdom as this. It's the skill of godly living so that a life of lasting value is produced. Wisdom is the skill uh, of godly living so that a life of lasting value is produced is produced. And we talked about some of the different aspects of wisdom that are covered throughout the book of Proverbs. So there's that practical wisdom of, of, of what does it look like? What are the things I'm actually going to do? And then there's there's intellectual wisdom, right? Some of wisdom requires just some basic knowledge and understanding. There's a type of moral wisdom as we discern the ethics of life. Like what is right and wrong? How do we we, we have these laws, we have these morals, but how do we apply them in the everyday stuff of life? There's discerning wisdom as we um, uh, 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 understand the difference between good and evil and, and right and wrong and which pathway is the right one. And then there's directional wisdom as we seek to allow God to guide and direct the shape and the direction of our life. And each of us, according to God's design, will have different capacities for wisdom, right? Some people, you know, I, I can look at some people and go, man, they're, 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 they're sages, they're wise. I, I could probably never touch their wisdom. They have a high capacity of wisdom. And maybe there's people you go, look, based on how God has designed them, their capacity um, isn't as high. And the, 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 our job is to be faithful with, with what God has given us based on our capacity uh, to make God our highest priority to make him our deepest love and our foundational trust, really just to be faithful with what God has given you. And it's from this posture that we begin to understand how life really works, what really matters, and how to live. See, everybody can live a life of wisdom. Now in this passage, Solomon is continuing in these fatherly talks with his son. Kind of the first half of Proverbs is 11 lessons or lectures or, or moments where Solomon is instructing his son. These kind of, These big moments, the things that he says, listen, more than anything, I want you to take away these truths. And now he introduces, for the first time in the book, this concept of blessing. If you read uh, uh, the very first word in chapter one, verse one, the, the word blessed or blessing hasn't showed up yet. Now Solomon is saying, okay, son, listen, if you want to live a life that is blessed, here's how you do it. It's the first time this word has shown up. In fact, this first section that we're looking at Um, It begins with the word blessed and it ends with the word blessed. So it kind of forms this nice, tight composite whole. Verse 13 says, blessed is the one who finds wisdom. And in verse 18, those who hold fast to wisdom are called blessed. Anytime in the Bible where you see these kind of bookends, it's giving you a, a reference point to say there's something here you need to take away. Now this word blessed uh, uh, that we translate, uh, the Hebrew word that we translate blessed uh, is really a comprehensive word. It's one of those pregnant words It's filled with a lot of meaning. You could, you could really think about what does it mean to be blessed? It doesn't mean that you're happy. Uh, it doesn't mean that everything in your life uh, is going exactly the way that you want it. If I could give us a, 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 a word that I, that I think captures it uh, more fully in our English uh, modern language, I would say it's the word flourish. Like to be blessed is that you're flourishing, that the, that the many components of your life are working well. You're flourishing. The blessed life, the life of, of flourishing is, is this invitation from God to live life as it was meant to be. It's this invitation from God to go, listen, um, I want you to reconsider what is good, true, and beautiful. Everybody ha- uh, operates in those uh, in those categories. Everyone thinks about what is good and, and what is wrong, what is what is true and what is not, and what is truly beautiful. And, and if we spend some time together talking, we could start to outline what for you is your good, true, and beautiful. And Solomon is inviting his son to go, listen, the life of blessing, part of that involves you reorienting um, your definitions and standards of what is good, true, and beautiful according to the Lord, who himself is what is good, what is true, and what is beautiful. It's an invitation, the blessed life, the the life of flourishing is, is this invitation to have your heart formed, shaped, and directed by God so that you begin to desire what he desires. It's to experience the fulfillment of your deepest longings and to have life, meaning, and purpose to the full. To flourish, to be blessed means to come alive as God pours his life into your life. See, God himself is life and connected to him. We we receive life from him and he begins to open our eyes so that we see him for who he is. And when his life is animating and driving your life, you will be blessed. You will flourish. You will thrive So Solomon tells his son, listen, if you want to be blessed, if you want to flourish, if you want a life that is stable and strong, he says, find wisdom, get understanding. That's what he said in verse 13. And so when he says to find wisdom, to get understanding, here's what he's not saying. He's not saying that wisdom is hidden or lost, like some uh, quest for the Holy Grail, right? There's all these speculations about uh, where it might be and to to drink from the the everlasting uh, fountain of life. It's not some quest that you've got to go on and put on like an Indiana Jones hat and a whip. That's not what he's talking about here. When he says, get wisdom... He's saying it's out there and it's out in the open. Remember in chapter one, Solomon said that wisdom is crying aloud in the streets. See, Lady Folly is whispering um, deceptive secrets. Wisdom is out there going, hey, I'm here. Come, come learn from me. I'm not hidden. I'm, I'm out in the marketplace. I'm out in the streets. I'm out there and available for you. In chapter two, Solomon says, It's the Lord who gives wisdom. So wisdom is out there and available, and we know who gives it. It's God who gives wisdom. And in chapter three, last week we looked at it, he said, If you'll trust in the Lord, God will make your path straight and give you wisdom. See, it's not that wisdom is hard to find, it's that wisdom is hard to pursue. It's a matter of desire. See, the question is not, where is wisdom? I I don't know where to look for it. The question is, do you want it? If you want wisdom, you can have it. Now, Solomon continues in this section. And he lays out these benefits of wisdom to help his son see the value of wisdom. So he says, hey, wisdom, it's better than gold and silver and precious jewels. If you were to modernize this, he'd say this is better than a high-paying job, a deep bank account, and an you know in this uh uh, uh big 401 k he's saying it's it's better than all of those securities. See silver, gold, and precious jewels—they're valuable, but they don't compare to the value of wisdom. It's not that those things are worthless; they're valuable, but wisdom is more valuable than they are. Let me try to illustrate this. See, money can buy a house, right? Like you—if you have the right amount of money, you can go in and they'll they'll give you a house. But it takes wisdom to take the brick and mortar and to make it a home. That doesn't happen just by throwing money out there. Money can provide a nice vacation. So if you've got the the bucks, you can go on that dream vacation, but it takes wisdom to make a vacation meaningful, to connect with the people that you were there with. Money can provide the sustenance to live, but it takes wisdom to make a life. Money can provide the, 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 the things you need to live, but it's wisdom that takes that living and makes it meaning a meaningful life. Now look at verse 16 and 7. 17. Solomon says, long life is in her right hand, and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. Wisdom is uh, Solomon's continuing to, to lay out the, the, the benefits and the value of wisdom. He says, look, wisdom holds long life in her right hand and, and riches in, in honor. And the fact that um, it, the long life is in her right hand, right hand would be a, a place of, of prominence, and then her left hand are riches and honor. Both important, but long life, meaningful life is what's more important. See, the life of wisdom is a life that's characterized by pleasantness and peace. Now, it doesn't mean that it's always going to be pleasantness and peace. If you if you take these verses out of context, you might think that these are uh, promises from God. And you might be going, "Listen, my life hasn't been pleasant and, pe- pleasantness and peace and I've tried following after the Lord. Why is there suffering in my life?" And in fact, in, uh, later on in these verses, he's going to talk about that. But if you keep the whole Bible in mind when you read the Proverbs, here's what you got to realize. Proverbs aren't guaranteed promises. That's not what they are. What they are, as wisdom literature, is teaching us principles about how things generally work, about how life works best. They're not guaranteed promises about how it's always going to be. When you read the Bible as a comprehensive whole, you find out that the Bible teaches that Christians will and should expect to experience suffering, trials, and pain. It's all over the Bible. Let me give you just one example. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12-13, through he says this, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. See, when, when Christians come and say, "Man, I can't believe it, I'm going through, through struggles and suffering, I go, what, what did you expect? Peter says, no, you should actually expect it. So when it comes, you go, oh yeah, I I knew this was coming. It's it's part of the Christian life. Peter's saying, listen, Jesus Christ, the innocent and perfect son of God, he suffered. So those who walk with him should expect no less. We don't get a pass on suffering. Christians will experience pain and suffering and trial. Jesus wasn't exempt, and so his disciples shouldn't expect to be exempted either. What Proverbs is saying is that we can often bring on ourselves unnecessary suffering if we choose to live foolishly and desire wrongly, so that you can actually add extra suffering to your life if you choose to make foolish decisions, right? I remember this time. Um, I was a kid, and my mom said, hey, don't um, walk on top of the, the kitchen counters, and, and, you which know, seems like just a, a right thing to do. But, and I also did it with socks on. She said, don't do it. You're going to slip. You're going to fall. Something bad is going to happen. So one time she's cooking, and I've got my socks on, and I'm walking across the top, and we had the, a, a gas stove, and my sock caught on fire, right? And so she grabs me and, and throws me into the sink and, and, and gets it out before too much damage was done. See, I brought on unnecessary suffering. I didn't have to go through that had I listened to wisdom from mom. Don't walk on the, t- on the countertops, right? But she said, okay, you want to go down the path of the fool? You can experience some unnecessary suffering, right? If we walk down the path of the fool, Proverbs is telling us, you can also expect extra suffering. Like anybody wants an extra dose of suffering? No, but if you walk down the path of the fool, that is what you're signing up for. If you walk down the path of the fool, you should expect, on top of the other suffering you're going to get, more suffering. But Solomon's saying, if you walk down the path of the wise, you're in the best possible position to experience the benefits and the blessings of wisdom. Now, while Proverbs doesn't guarantee that we'll never experience loss and pain, doesn't mean we're not going to do that, but it is guaranteeing us that at the end of that path, at the end of our road, we will come into the very presence of God and receive fullness of joy when we're face to face with him. That is guaranteed. So whatever light and momentary trials we suffer in at this side of heaven, there is coming a day when that will all be gone. When you have a relationship with God, you have true riches and true life, and you will have lasting peace and delight. Look with me at me in verse 18. He's going on to talk about wisdom. He says, she is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. Now, it's at this point that wisdom, uh, Solomon compares wisdom to this tree of life. Now, if you're familiar with the biblical story, you remember, wait a minute, the tree of life, I remember that back in the garden. And there was a tree of life in the garden. And had Adam and Eve not eaten from the forbidden tree, they would have been invited to eat from this tree of life and enjoy the presence of God forever. But as you know, they're tempted and they give into that temptation. They follow the course of their desires and they walk down the path of the fool and they eat from the forbidden tree. And what happens when you walk down the path of the fool? suffering and curses. They desired self-autonomy. They wanted to decide for themselves what was right and wrong. And their sin, their rebellion caused death, decay, and destruction. And not only for them, but for the entire world around them. And their sin ruptured their relationship with God. They were uh, uh, banished from the garden and therefore cut off from the tree of life. See, God had told them the consequences for the rebellion, that under sin, they'd be be cut off from him, and that life and work would be filled with pain and suffering. That's Genesis 1, 2, and 3. But if you jump to the end of the Bible and you go to the book of Revelation, you'll find the tree of life emerges again, and it stands at the center of renewed creation when the curse of sin is gone and life is fully restored. And what Solomon is saying is, listen, between Genesis 3 and Revelation 22 is this invitation to live a life of wisdom and to get a foretaste of that tree of life. What he's saying is when you live the way God has designed you to live, when you follow the path of life, when you follow his wisdom, it's like you're eating from that tree of life and you're experiencing the benefits and the blessings that come. And it's a foretaste. It's a prelude. It's a, if you're a foodie, it's an amuse-bouche. It's, it's setting up the course of the meal. If you don't know what an amuse-bouche is, let's talk later. When we live according to the wisdom of God, we get to taste from the tree of life and it becomes this picture of what's to come. That's why Solomon says to his son, listen, nothing you could desire compares with wisdom. Did you see that? It's not that wisdom is hard to find. It's that wisdom is hard to pursue. It's a matter of desire because if you desire it most, that will be what you pursue. The question is not where is it? The question is, do you want it? That's where we have to look inward and ask, what do I truly desire? Because at the end of the day, everyone to a person pursues what they desire most. Look what C.S. Lewis said about this. He would say, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Lewis is saying, that we are far too easily pleased by these lesser pursuits, these, these lesser desires, when infinite joy, fullness of joy, pleasant path, life itself is being offered to us. And so instead of aiming our desires at him and his wisdom, we aim our desires at these lesser things that will never satisfy. What Solomon is saying is if you want to build a life that is structurally sound, you have to look inward at the desires of your heart. Where are they? Where are you aiming them? Because everybody aims their desires at something. There are no aimless desires. They attach to things. So are your desires uh, resistant to distraction and discontent? I think those are two of the biggest things that, uh, that, that stand in the way of pointing our desires to God. Instead of pointing to it, often we get distracted by by other things or we're discontent. And so we're just on this search to find something that will satisfy our heart. Are your desires firmly fixed to desire the Lord and his wisdom above all else? That's why we have to look inward. But now let's look at verses 19 through 26 as we look upward to the Lord. Verse 19. The Lord, by his wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down their dew. Solomon tells his son to look inside his heart to see if he desires wisdom. And now he says, now also at the same time, you have to look upward at the Lord. Just like the previous section began and ended with the word blessed, this section begins and ends with the Lord. Verse 19, the Lord by his wisdom founded the earth and established the heavens. And verse 26, for the Lord will be your confidence and keep your foot from being caught. So we've got this uh, this next section about looking up to the Lord. See, a life of stability follows the designs of the designer. See, if, if you are, are, are building something and the architect and the designer say, this is how you should do it. But then you go, yeah, 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 that's nice and all. I'm going to do it my own way. You're, you're going off track. You're going off the plans of the designer and doing it in a way that seems best to you. And so if the structure falls, the designer says, hey, not my fault. I gave you the designs. I gave you the plans. I told you where to put those supporting beams and joists, but you decided to put them wherever you wanted to. You said, well, that that wall's not really load-bearing, even though the designer said, no, 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 it is, in fact, load-bearing, right? What should you expect if you go off the plans, right? A life of stability follows the design of the designer. You did not emerge out of some primordial goo. You were made by a designer, a creator who knows you and has designed you. And guess what? As, his, as your designer and as your creator, he knows you better than you know yourself. He's designed your heart to have a capacity for joy and delight. And guess what? He knows exactly what will get, get you there. He knows it and it's himself. He made you with this capacity for himself. You don't even know you better than the Lord knows you. Solomon says, everything from heaven to earth was created by God, and the only tool he needed was wisdom. By wisdom and through his word, God created and designed everything. Listen to how Pastor Ray Ortland um, asks this question. He asks us right now, if God by his wisdom can work that wonder in nature, what will he accomplish by his wisdom in you? Have you ever been out in nature, seen the stars in the sky, or sat at the, the tides of the shore. It's like we could just sit there forever and we're marveling at the splendor and majesty. Have you ever seen the stretches of the plains or stood at the base of the heights of the mountains? Or, or marveled by how the, 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 the water cycle continues to, to, to filter and bring rain down so that the earth is nourished and sustains life? or how, the, how the, 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 uh, our planet and our solar system works to orbit and spin so that we have seasons. I mean, we could just go on and on and on about the splendor of nature, and it, and, and it just helps us to, to marvel at the Lord. And what Solomon is saying, he's saying the same wisdom, the same majesty, the same splendor and power of God to create all that we stand at and to be amazed at can work in you and through you as well. And nature isn't even the height of his creation. We are the apex of his creation. We are the apple of his eye. And if God could work that marvelous stuff in nature, how could he not work in you as well, whom he cares infinitely more about? He goes on in verse 21. He says, my son, don't lose sight of these things. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you'll walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of ruin of the wicked when it comes, for the Lord will be your confidence, and he will keep your foot from being caught. Solomon says, listen, don't lose sight of wisdom. He's picking up that theme from the previous section of pursuing wisdom and holding fast to wisdom, wisdom and keeping your sights on wisdom. Like a good father, he's repeating himself so that you don't miss it. And he says, look, the life of wisdom is marked by a stable life. When, when I was reading those verses, did you see these words of stability and security and not stumbling and being held up by the Lord. See, it doesn't mean that pressure and tension won't come. It just means that when it comes, you're stable. You're able to remain upright. See, when you're walking on your way, you'll be secure. Your your foot won't stumble. You don't have to be afraid when terror uh, and pain and suffering comes because when it does, and it will come, it will be the Lord who will be your confidence. He'll be the one to keep your foot from being caught. Notice Solomon doesn't say... uh, if suffering comes, he says, when it comes. Again, we should expect it. But when it comes, and it will, whether it's ruin from the wicked, whether it's just suffering that results from living in a fallen and broken world, whatever it is, in that season, your ability to keep from stumbling will not be because of your great strength. It will be because of his great strength. Christian, our structural stability comes from the Lord. When the demands and the responsibilities of life press in on you and me, when the tension and toil of our work causes stress, when, when the suffering of living, and, living in a sinful and broken world seeks to topple us over, those who trust in the Lord will not fall. Those who build their life on the wisdom of God will be able to endure. Solomon says, even the only reason, the only reason that you can even sleep at night is because the God who never sleeps is your strength. He is your confidence. He is your stability. Talk to men and women who have followed the Lord for seasons and years. Here's what they won't say. They'll never say, man, since I have followed God, I've not had a day of suffering in my life. That's not what you're going to hear them say. They will tell you That when the trials and the storms came, the Lord was with me. It was the Lord who brought them through. Isaiah 43, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. To those in Christ, the redeemed, God says, I love you. I know your name. You are mine. Uh, Kevin mentioned that we were in Florida this week, um, Acts 29. And, and I was uh, uh, walking into the first main session, and I heard my name. And I turned around, and there was my friend, Greg Hill. And I haven't seen Greg in about eight years, and I was so overjoyed and so overwhelmed uh, and excited to see him. Um, Greg has a very powerful story. Um, several years ago, about five years ago, they, they own a, a big piece of property out in Illinois, and they have one of those like uh, huge lawn mowers that you need in order to uh, mow and keep up that kind of land. And about five years ago, um, he's got you know the 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 over the uh, ear uh, ear protectors, and he's 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 going backwards, and his son. Second oldest son uh, was was playing a game behind him, and he uh, mowed over his uh, his legs. Um, His son is is a double amputee, and you talk about. Uh, just the pain and the suffering. I, I've spent uh, time with him on the phone, and, uh, and, and but this is the first time I've gotten to see uh, Greg since that time. Now, his son is is doing remarkably well. Um, he's got some uh, amazing prosthesis. I mean, he, the kid can can run faster than I can. It's unbelievable. Um, but in getting to see Greg it was the first time I got to just hold him and embrace him and say, man, how, how are you? Um, as a father, I, I just can't even imagine all the lies from the enemy that he must have faced and just knowing that life forever has changed for his son and and for his family and he says Isaiah 43 man I have walked through the fire I have tried to cross the water and he says I can tell you it was the Lord who kept the waters from overwhelming me it was the Lord who kept the fires from consuming me God is his savior and he's your savior as well. See, everyone looks to something for stability because we, we inherently know that we need something to keep us up. It could be anything. It could be money, jobs, relationships, family. Some of us are even arrogant enough to think that you're strong enough on your own to be your own stability. But when suffering and terror come, will those things keep you stronger? Will those things be, I mean, you think Greg on that day was going, well, at least I have a lot of money in the bank account. Hey, at least I got a good job, right? In times like that, all of those things are put in place, and you're looking for something real, something lasting, something to anchor your soul. I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Solomon says, true confidence, true stability only come from the Lord. If you want to build a life that is structurally sound, first, you have to look inward at the desires of your heart and you have to ask, do I really want it? Not do I want it on paper, do I really want it? And secondly, you have to look to the Lord and say, God, I need you to be my stability. I need you to be my anchor. Now finally, the last few verses, Solomon says we need to look outward look with me at verse 27 he says don't withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it don't say to your neighbor hey go come again tomorrow and I'll I'll give you it when you have it with you now when I first read this I thought well this seems to take a different direction right we're talking about the desires of our heart we're talking about the Lord and then it says hey be good to your neighbor and it seems to kind of come out of left field See, the first section's about desiring wisdom and above all of the pursuits and now the Lord being our anchor. And then it seems to go in this different direction where Solomon started to teach his son about how we treat and interact with others. And when this happens, as you read your Bible and you come to a place that you don't understand the direction, this is where you have to start asking a lot of questions. Like, God, why these verses right here? Why, why, why this point? What are you trying to say? And if the answer doesn't come immediately, Just wait longer. Just be patient. Keep asking questions. Keep reading. And as I studied, the Lord began to bring clarity. I started to realize, look, a life of stability is not one lived on your own. It's not just you and the Lord and, and, and then forget about everything else. A life of stability cannot be lived without community. See, God designed us to be communal, relational beings. God actually cares about how we interact and relate to one another. God actually cares about how we treat one another. See, living out our faith has implications for how we treat our neighbors. So when, you desire, when your desires begin to be shaped by the wisdom of God, you'll find something happening that you will start to love people as God loves people. When your confidence and your stability, your security are all anchored to God, then you begin to have this capacity for generosity. So let me, let me dig into this text and I'll show you what I mean. He says, when your neighbor comes to you with a need, if you're able to meet that need, then do it. See, if your desires are being shaped by the Lord, then you're going to care for people like God cares for people. You'll, you'll want to meet their needs like God meets your needs. When you, when you realize the extent to which God has met your needs, you, you, you feel over excited to go, look, I've been given so much. Uh, this is just a small thing to me uh, to help you. See, when God is your stability, you're not going to hoard your money and your time. You'll be free to give it away generously because your security isn't tied to your wallet and your watch, right? You see how that works? When the Lord is your security, you're not looking to these other things to be your life. And so you go, yeah, you can have some of mine. I don't need, I'm, I'm anchored to the one who can give me all things. So what is it to me to give you a little bit of this? Solomon's saying, right now, settle the decision. Settle it in your heart. Don't say, hey, I I know about the need now. Why don't you go away and let me reconsider? He's saying, no, no. Right now, settle it in your mind and your heart that you're going to be a person of generosity. Don't wait till your neighbor comes to you with a need to decide if you're going to be generous. Settle it now so that when the opportunity comes, you're able to go, yes, I can help you. Practically, here's what this looks like. As you make your budget, and if you don't have a budget, like sidebar, get a budget, know where your money is going. That's really important. Because then you you can't be generous like that if you don't know what you have to give, right? As you budget and you consider your money, as you plan and consider your calendar, decide right now what generosity looks like. Know before the situation arises so you can meet someone's need. So that means as you make your budget, you're putting in margin, you're saying, look, we're not going to fill it so packed that we can never say yes to helping somebody move. We're not going to um, so, uh, uh, live dollar to dollar, month by month, uh, so that we can be generous with something. It doesn't have to be a lot. I mean, sometimes just $5 can make somebody's day, right? Hey, let me buy you a, a, a cup of coffee. Let me buy you a, a, a cheat meal. You know, $5 goes a long way at Wendy's. I'm not saying it's the best food, but if someone's not had a meal in a while, right? It's something. We're not talking about you have to have thousands of extra dollars to begin to be generous. You can begin to be generous with just a little bit. With just a little bit. Seven Mile, what would it look like if we were known as the most generous people in Waltham and the surrounding towns? What if, what if someone said, hey, I know about your church. You're people who really care. You're generous with your time and your money. Look with me at verses 29 and 30. He goes on, he says, "Don't plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trust, trustingly beside you. Don't contend with a man for no reason when he's done you no harm." These last couple verses were, those last couple verses were about being generous. These are about being a people marked by peace, right? We shouldn't be contentious looking for ways to get into fights and, and, to, and to manipulate people. We shouldn't be plotting evil against our neighbor. Rather, we should be planning good towards our neighbor. See, those verses were written as like negative prohibitions about not planning evil. Listen to what happens if you write them in the positive voice. So what I did is I just took the exact same verses and I just uh, uh, put in the, the positive language. Listen to this. Plan good for your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Seek peace with a person and look for reasons to bless him even if he doesn't deserve it. That's a, that 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 call to us to be people of peace and generosity. You see what's going on here? Solomon is just following out the logical implications of what happens when you desire God above all else and have anchored himself To him as your stability. See, when those two things are in place, we start to treat people like Jesus treated people. And the result is that people begin to notice. Our lifestyle begins to be this compelling vision of what a life looks like when we follow Jesus. And so, as we seek to be generous and peaceful neighbors, the Lord uses that witness uh, to see uh, neighbors become family. We talk about that a lot of being about a church where neighbors become family. Part of the recipe of how that happens is the way that we live our lives and the way that we, the way that we treat our neighbors. See, we live in a culture where the bar of ethics is set incredibly low. Often, the, the 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 bar of morality is is what I'm doing. Does it harm somebody? Is what I'm doing, does it hurt someone? And that bar is far too low. The ethics of Christianity says, does it bless someone? Does it lead to their good and flourishing? We are to live in such a way that those around us begin to thrive and flourish. And we're living the blessed life. We begin to be blessed and we, we thrive and we flourish and we extend that flourishing and that thriving to those who live around us. Now let's look at the last couple verses as we finish out. 31, don't envy a man of violence and don't choose any of his ways for the devious person is an abomination to the Lord but the upright are in his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners he is scornful and to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor but fools get disgrace. Tragically, in a world marked by sin, oftentimes violent people succeed. They use their power to get their way, and if we aren't careful, we can even sometimes become envious of their success and think, man, if I was just a little more uh, powerful, if I just, man, what if I cut some corners and did some shady things, maybe I could have some of that same success. And though it may seem like right now they may be prospering, their prosperity is fleeting. It doesn't last because at the end of the path, Solomon tells us, at the end of the path is judgment, curses, and disgrace. Though our path may be filled sometimes by being um, uh, uh, prone to matters of injustice and maybe we're going to go through suffering, but the end of our path is life and peace and grace. The wicked on their path, on the path of the fool, they might experience fleeting gain, but at the end is judgment, curses, and disgrace. At the end of the path of righteousness, is blessing, favor, and honor. So he's saying keep the end in mind. Remember where you're headed. In fact, he says the upright, the righteous are in his confidence. This is a Hebrew word that refers to, the, to this intimate circle of friends. Like, like who you call when you need the best advice. When you have something to share that's personal and private, the, those people you go, hey, I need, I need to tell you something. I need to get something uh, off my chest. He's saying the, the righteous are, are like that with the Lord. He's a intimate friend. He's a close companion. Solomon says those who walk in the wisdom of God, those who fear God, enjoy this intimate relationship with God. They know that the righteous will inherit the earth and that God will lift up the humble. Solomon is saying, when you desire God above all and your stability is connected with him, your life externally on the outside will be marked by generosity towards your neighbors. It will be marked by by a, a posture of your heart that seeks the good and the peace of your neighbor. And you will be a person who pursues righteousness and humility. See, a structure is sound and sturdy when it has resistance, stability, and rigidity. It's internally resistant to decay and the elements of weather over time. It's stable. It's been well-designed and engineered to remain upright and not tip over under the pressure of a load. And it's rigid because it has strong joints and braces. Likewise, a life is sound and sturdy when it has this internal resistance to not let anything distract our desires from loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We become stable as we anchor ourselves to the Lord so that when the pressures of life and suffering come, we don't topple over. And we become rigid as we form strong bonds uh, with our neighbors seeking to be a people who are marked by generosity, peace, and righteousness. But if you've been walking, you know that we can't muster up that desire to love God on our own. We don't often have the wisdom on our own to anchor ourselves to God, and truth be told, Without Christ, we are not selfless enough to be generous with our neighbors. Simply put, nothing that I just said is possible without Christ. But with Christ, everything is possible. We can become strong and stable precisely because Jesus became weak and vulnerable. You remember earlier in verse 18 when Solomon said that we, uh, when we live this way, we get to taste this tree of life? Our ability to taste and eat from that tree of life today and our ability to eat from that tree of life uh, when Jesus comes was made possible because Jesus hung on the tree of death. That's what uh, the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 3. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The blessings of wisdom are available to us because Jesus became a curse for us. And when we truly see all that God has done for us in Christ, that begins to stir up our desires for him. Do you want Christ? Do you want to pursue him? Do you want to follow him? When you understand the cross and the resurrection, then the answer is yes, Look what he's done for me. How could I not desire him? When I truly realize all that Jesus did for me, that he died for me, and now he lives for me, now he reigns for me, it changes who I am from the inside out so that I want to build my life on Christ as my only firm foundation. And when you build your life on Christ, you build a life that is strong and stable.